This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September 29th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. and the Fox News Bureau here in our nation's capital, the Tony Snow Studios. Thank you very much for tuning in. Every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m., that's our show. I'm your host, also political editor at townhall.com and a Fox News contributor. I'll be on special report tonight with Brett Baer and company on that panel around 6.45 Eastern Time. Hope to see you there on Fox News Channel. Our website here for the radio show is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day on demand. Lots of content there at that website, GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram. It's at GuyBensonShow. We'll get to our first guest here in just a moment, the aforementioned Brett Bayer, anchor of Special Report. He will join us here in studio later this hour. Jessica Tarloff of The Five in the next hour. And in our final hour, Jason Rance, radio host, crime correspondent. We'll be talking about the midterms and that issue of crime with Jason coming up a bit later on. We open with a Fox News alert. Hurricane Ian, now a tropical storm. It has left Florida. It's off the East Coast now and moving northward. There is some concern that I've seen that it could re-strengthen into a hurricane as it smashes into other states. But right now, Florida is reeling from what it just experienced. More than 2.5 million Floridians without power. There are now search and rescue missions underway. A death toll that is very unspecific. There's been some disagreement and conflicting information about that. But last night on Fox News Channel, Governor DeSantis talked about the historic nature of this natural disaster in cut four. Well, I think it's clearly the biggest flood event we've ever seen in that part of the state. Um, and that's not just Lee and Charlotte. That would be Collier. And you had massive, massive storm surge. You have places in, in those counties that have massive standing water. That, of course, presents a lot of hazards on the back end. I mean, we've been telling folks, be, be careful once the storm goes past. There were seven deaths directly caused by Hurricane Irma. There were 77 deaths caused in the aftermath for things like down power lines or misusing right. generators. So that's going to be a major, major disaster. DeSantis has been giving regular updates and briefings. Seems like he's barely slept in Florida now over the last couple of days. He and President Biden sort of famously had not spoken about this issue. Biden was only talking to mayors, not to the governor. Governor DeSantis, we played the sound saying, we have no time for political pettiness here. My phone line is open. And since he said that, sort of an olive branch, the report is, and it's been confirmed by both leaders, that Biden and DeSantis have now spoken on four or five different occasions, and they've been 
mutually respectful, DeSantis very openly thanking the Biden administration for their assistance on some of these requests. And hopefully that cooperation will continue to transcend politics. Now, what is next for this storm and what comes next down in Florida? Joining us now is Rick Reichmuth, chief meteorologist for Fox News. And Rick, it's good to have you here. Glad to be here, Guy. It was very nice to meet you, I have to say, for the first time in person. We were in New York. I was on Fox and Friends, and we were able to chat a little bit in the green room. Since then, obviously, things have gotten very serious in your world and for the people of Florida. Let's just start with the present threat of this storm. It's gone from Florida. It's now downgraded to a tropical storm. How real is this possibility that it could once again gain momentum sufficient to be categorized yet again as a hurricane, as it heads toward other parts of the country in the southeast? Uh, I'd say it's likely that that'll happen. And when we say it's out from Florida, that's just the center of the storm is now off of the coast of Florida. So Florida still has impacts the east coast of Florida. We've probably got about another maybe five to seven inches of rain for places from around Daytona Beach up towards Jacksonville. So more rain to be had along the coast. They've had a lot of rain already. That flooding will continue. And there's a b- big storm surge issue that's continuing to go on, especially up towards Jacksonville, um, where we've got all of that rain that's falling. A lot of it wants to exit the St. John's River in towards Jacksonville. But the coast is pushing, the the, the uh, wind is pushing that water back up into that river that wants to exit. And so that's causing storm surge that is going to be really significant around the Jacksonville area. If you're along that St. John's River, a lot of people know exactly where they are there and if they're susceptible to storm surge issues, but they're going to have it right there. So Florida still has it for about the next, at least that rain for probably about the next eight to 10 hours. Then most of that rain will be off. And then by tomorrow, we're going to look at a landfall of the storm somewhere in South Carolina. I don't think it'll be Georgia. I don't think it'll be North Carolina, but it's going to be South Carolina for a landfall of the center. They're already getting the rain from this or getting an increased storm surge. They're getting the wind already, but probably we'll have a storm that's strengthened. It's going to have enough time over water, going to go over the Gulf Stream, which is that really warm water that's there out in the Atlantic. And uh, because the center of it's still enough intact, we'll probably see the strengthen again. One thing, guys, mm-hmm. sometimes, uh, you know, when a, a hurricane goes over land, it begins to weaken because it doesn't have that that energy source any longer. But if it goes over mountainous land, it really disrupts that center circulation of a storm. Florida's flat. So it doesn't have any of those mountains to break it up. It it was able to go across the entire state uh, and still keep that center circulation really well intact. And that's why we think it'll strengthen again before it gets back, uh, makes a second landfall tomorrow in South Carolina. Yeah. And your assessment here is South Carolina. Is that for certain? Could this thing change overnight? And how specific will you get and when about which communities in particular, whether it's North Georgia or the southern part of North Carolina or the, the entire coastline of South Carolina? Will there be more specificity? When will people have a sense of if their communities are really in the danger zone? Yeah. You know what? I'm glad you asked this question because let's use Florida as an example of this. So the images we're seeing right now out of the Fort Myers, Naples area, that's where we saw the storm surge. And that's where we saw that really devastating the devastating impacts from this hurricane. But then there's the rain impacts that's across a much bigger area from Tampa through Orlando up towards Daytona Beach uh, into Jacksonville. So a big rain impact far away from where the center of the storm came on shore and then wind for everybody. So if you say which communities in South Carolina, we're not going to pinpoint an exact spot where the center of it will come on, but from the center of it to the right, 
we will see storm surge. And that storm surge right now looks like maybe four to seven feet, and that'll definitely cause some problems uh, in that area. But everybody in South Carolina is going to see a lot of rain. We'll see a lot of wind. So we'll see flooding across interior sections. We'll see power outages as well. Not like what we saw in Florida because it'll be a much weaker storm. But it'll be a, a probably a Category 1 hurricane. And so that will can definitely has a possibility to cause yeah, you know, some Yeah, that was problems. my next question. I don't want to downplay it or be dismissive at all of the ongoing threat. But when Ian made landfall in Florida is category four. We've seen how awful it's been, especially in the southwestern part of Florida. If and when it gets to South Carolina, it'll be maybe at most category one. Is that less scary? And I just want to make sure that we're we're talking about that in a way that doesn't make people let their guard down or not prepare properly, but also we don't want to be overly needlessly alarmist either. What do you what is your communication to people who are living in South Carolina or areas that will probably get hit tomorrow by this thing. I mean, isn't that the trick in media in general is to try to figure out how to accurately assess and communicate the risk threat. And so there's no way that a category one is as high of a risk as a category four. It's just not. But a category one, if we hadn't had this cat four that just hit and this was only a category one heading towards South Carolina, we'd be putting a lot of energy into it because a category one can be a really serious storm and all of that just depends on your infrastructure. It depends on the elevation of your home or your business. It depends on uh, how close you are to the coast. It depends on, you know, if you're in a flood-prone area. It depends if your trees and your electrical uh, uh, system in your community, if, it, if it's above ground and you've got old trees that haven't been pruned or pruned by Mother Nature from wind and such. So, you know, all of these things are relative. But you're not going to have what you saw in in Florida happen in South Carolina. But if you're in South Carolina, you need to know your home, know your surroundings, listen to your local emergency managers, because those are the ones who know every road and every spot that floods and pay attention to what they say. And and just be aware of your surroundings because category one can cause a lot of damage. It's not going to cause what we're seeing in Florida, but you don't have to have that for you to have, you know, big financial impacts or loss of life. Yeah, I think that's important context. That's what's next. What we've just seen, the aftermath in Florida, some of the images are just stunning. I saw a quote from Governor DeSantis saying that the very character of the state has changed because of this storm based on what you're seeing and gathering, because we only get little snippets. You'll see it on social media. You'll see it splashed on the screen on the news channel, for example. In terms of your career, Rick, as you've followed a lot of big storms, where does this one rank? You don't have to give an exact number, but on the level of seriousness and destruction, is this one as bad as it seems to be for Florida? Uh, yeah, it's definitely bad. I mean, again, there's I've been doing this a long time and there's been a lot of really bad hurricanes, you know, that have done different things. And each one kind of takes on its own um has its sometimes they have a very specific threat like Harvey that made landfall in Texas in an area that wasn't hugely populated but then it stalled and rained 60 inches and we saw all of that flooding in the Houston area was such a massive storm and 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 big damage uh we saw the same thing with uh Florence and suddenly my mind isn't positive it's Florence but I'm sure it's Florence uh that hit the Carolinas a couple years ago and did the same thing just brought all of this flooding um this one really kind of had all of it. It was a slow mover, so it had the flooding. It was so strong, so it had the wind, and it had the storm surge. So it kind of had all three of those impacts. Mm. Um, 
this isn't it, it we're, that isn't hyperbolic to be saying that this is a really impactful, significant hurricane that we just had happen in South Florida. Rick Reichmuth is the chief meteorologist here at Fox News. My last question has to do with your profession and media coverage of weather events like this. I've seen sort of like this side plot on social media and sort of spilling out into conversations, even with friends. And this happens from time to time in a big storm. There was that video that went everywhere of one of these reporters out there getting hit by debris live on the air. It looked like a very dangerous situation. Someone could get very badly hurt or even killed. And people ask, is it ethical? Is it responsible? Is it necessary for news organizations to send people into the thick of an extremely dangerous storm while talking about how dangerous it is? And is there a a value add? Does it help keep other people safe to have that on the ground reporting? Or is it just really trying to get pictures and images that keep people's eyeballs attracted and therefore ratings. I just wonder from your perspective, as you watch that debate play out, what are the ethics and from a journalistic standpoint, what are sort of the standards about what is the value or maybe lack thereof of having people in harm's way reporting on storms sort of at ground zero? What do you think about that? I got to be honest with you. I don't know. (laughs) And I know you'd probably want a better answer. I, this is a, I struggle with this. I, I will tell you, as a consumer of news and of video and of weather information, um, I am drawn to that extreme video that we can show. So I think any of us are. And I think we live in a world now where, you know, I was watching something on on Instagram of an uh, of a sporting event, like an ath- athletic achievement that I thought, how in the world are they doing that now? Like everything has gotten so ramped up that we are becoming accustomed to seeing extreme things. And if we don't see something extreme, we go past it right away. I don't, I'm not even giving you an answer to your question. I think this is a, it's a great question. I don't know if there's any value to me. The bigger value is seeing you can put a camera up someplace and I will be drawn to it. Get the camera in the worst position. You don't need to throw a body there doing it. We know what can imagine what it's like to have your body you know, being pummeled by those winds and the video that we're seeing the day after ought to be what we need to remember the next time how dangerous and destructive these storms yep. are. You and know, in terms of rallying around those communities and sending help to Florida, donations, I'm sure the federal government will be involved, the yeah. state government as well, they're coordinating. And I really do see both sides of it where yeah. sometimes you see these people out there with stuff flying around, you're like, what on earth are they doing? Why? That person could get seriously hurt or or even die and they have a family they have colleagues is that worth you know is the juice worth the squeeze whatever right. cliche you want to use on the other hand it is journalism about breaking news yeah. and having people on the ground describing accurately exactly what they're seeing and not just you know a, a static camera somewhere pointing at one shot I, I sort of go back and forth on it which is why i asked the question and i'm sure <laughs> i it's feel the, the same conversation way. we're having now i feel we'll the same again. way yeah i, I totally Rick agree Reichmuth, Thanks, Jeff. Chief Meteorologist at Fox News joining us in New York from our headquarters up there. Rick, we do appreciate your time and your expertise. You bet. It is the Guy Benson Show just getting started on this Thursday. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson here on The Guy Benson Show. And this news just breaking moments ago, Fox News alert. Our colleague Chad Pergram tweeting just a short while ago over in the U.S. Senate, steps from our broadcast center here at the Guy Benson Show. The Senate has passed a so-called continuing resolution, which is a government funding bill, which averts a government shutdown. It will now move on to the House of Representatives. It needed 60 yeas to pass. It got Well over that, 72 yeses, 25 noes. I would imagine nearly all, if not all, of the noes were from Republicans, but there were enough Republicans joining hands to get the government funded. And I think this logjam was broken when the Joe Manchin piece of it that they were trying to attach to the CR that he had, I guess, dealt with Chuck Schumer on and he had negotiated this sort of rider, if you will, on permitting and this pipeline. Some Democrats opposed it. Some Republicans didn't want to reward Manchin for his negotiation with Schumer on the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. That got stripped out because of opposition to it, and then that cleared the way for this thing to pass. It's unclear if Manchin will actually get that bill passed either in the next few months or in a lame duck session. I know he's hoping that he will. Maybe he's been double-crossed here. And he won't get it done. And then he stuck his neck out for the Biden agenda in return for basically nothing at all, except perhaps for the guaranteed end of his political career in West Virginia, where he has really fallen badly and stumbled in the polls. He went from pretty popular in his home state to now deep underwater. And I know there's Republicans sharpening their knives for him. Maybe he'll just walk away from politics now depending on how this whole thing plays out in the next few months. But this was one bite at the apple, and it's strike one is how I described it earlier in the week on a special report. He said there would be consequences if the leadership in his party didn't actually make good on the promise. Well, here was one big opportunity for them to do that, and they could not get even their own party in line to do it. And there are progressives lining up in the House to oppose it as well. So I guess the writing was on the wall, and I wonder if Manchin feels kind of like a sucker. At this point, I guess we'll see how this thing plays out. By the way, we were talking about the hurricane. Now the tropical storm might become a hurricane again. There were some people on social media yesterday really strongly condemning President Trump for raising money or asking for money for himself and his political ambitions during this hurricane in his now home state of Florida. I'm not here to defend Trump and the timing of that. But those same people seem totally unbothered by the sitting president of the United States, Joe Biden, attending a political fundraiser last night here in Washington, D.C. If it's horrible for the former president, what, not a peep about the current president? You might be a hack if that's your outrage metric. We'll be right back. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. 
His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We're back here on the Guy Benson Show. Glad you're listening. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcast is free every day when the show is over, shortly after 6 p.m. Eastern Time, when I will be then in hair and makeup getting ready to join the panel tonight on Special Report with my next guest, Brett Bayer, chief political anchor here at Fox, also anchor of that program at 6 p.m. Eastern Special Report every weeknight. He's a very busy guy. Many books that he's written, all bestsellers, most recently To Rescue the Republic. You can follow him on social media at Brett Bayer, and it's great to see you here in studio. Hey, Guy. It's good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about the midterm cycle and where things stand right now. We're inside six weeks. I know we were talking about it on the panel a few nights ago. Got some new polling out yesterday that you featured on Special Report. Some new states now added to the pot tonight. I know that's embargo yep. till 6. Till 6, yeah. What can you tell us just in terms of what we might be looking for tonight on special report in terms of these new polling numbers? Well, I think what you're what you're seeing across the board is um a tightening of of these races and for the early sense that uh, some Democrats were going to run away from races where Republicans were criticized for choosing the wrong candidate. All of that comes together uh, as you get closer and closer to election, in part because people start paying attention uh, fully and because more and more policies are being talked about. And uh, you're also seeing a ton of money go into these races on both sides. So there, what we're seeing across the board is that the House seems to have shifted while the Democrats picked up. Uh, some momentum from the abortion, uh, the Dobbs decision and the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade, that has shifted, it seems, in the past few weeks away from Democrats and more towards Republicans as issues like crime and immigration have risen on the import for a lot of people, not just along border states, but across the country. Yeah, I keep saying that at some point, and this time could be different, although Sean Trendy has a great piece today at Real Clear Politics about how the sometimes, you know, this time is different mentality often does not actually play out in reality. And for that reason, I keep talking about the fundamentals of this cycle reasserting themselves at some point. And I feel like we've actually started to see that in these last couple of weeks, certainly on the House side. And then there's sort of the other element here, which is in some of these races, why the tightening partisans start to quote unquote, come home. And it's been difficult, for example, in Pennsylvania, where Dr. Oz squeaked through barely just a really tough bare knuckle primary. And the reason he was down 10, 12 points to John Fetterman was his support among Republicans was very weak. It's starting to come up and up and up. Independents are now getting an earful about John Fetterman's record, especially on crime. And last night, the polling from our pollster found that far from a blowout, this is now a four-point race. Fetterman's still ahead, but the momentum and the win certainly behind Oz's back. That's a really interesting one because if Oz can somehow keep this trajectory going and, and maybe overtake Fetterman, still a heavy lift, then the Republicans' path to a Senate majority is crystal clear in my mind. No, that's right. And I think uh, Pennsylvania is going to be the bellwether to watch. Uh, I think you're right in your analysis that, um, you know, candidate Joe Biden used to say, and my dad always told me that, you know, Joey, don't compare me to the almighty, compare, compare me to the alternative. 
And that's actually what happens is even in a bruising primary like Pennsylvania, uh, where Dave McCormick really took it to Mehmet Oz, um, at some point you look towards the alternative and those Republicans who were mad at Oz or those independents who said, I'm never voting for this guy, say, wait a second, am I voting for Lieutenant Governor Fetterman? And there's all these ads that say his policies on crime and jail and et cetera, et cetera. So that's right. I think that 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 Republican base comes home. That's why you're looking at a race that's uh, that's within the margin of error right now in Pennsylvania. And the momentum has shifted yep. towards Oz. I think in that governor's race, that hurts Oz because Mastriano is trailing by 11 or so. Yeah, he's he's really trailing really in that trailing. race. And so you'd need an awful lot of ticket splitters. And whether or not Oz can get enough of them if Mastriano gets hammered, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe. Again, the trajectory, the momentum looks good for him right now. Fetterman does not seem to have the wherewithal to really defend himself effectively, whether it's because of his health issues, but also because the record is what it is. It's very ugly. I'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show today, focusing on crime, specifically with Jason Rance. But almost the mirror opposite situation of that in terms of ticket splitting is in Georgia, where the Republican incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, basically every single poll that I've seen now for a month has Kemp up by seven, eight, nine points. He's up, I believe, seven in our new poll. And yet Herschel Walker, the Republican running for Senate, is trailing by four or five against Raphael Warnock in our poll. Now, there's other polls that show Herschel slightly ahead or tied. I think that's a very close Senate race. But if you're the Warnock people and you see the Republican governor leading comfortably and you've got all these undecideds, because I think even in our poll, the incumbent Warnock is nowhere near 50 percent. If there's a lot of undecideds out there. The president's very unpopular in the state. The Republican governor's doing well. Then you're probably wondering how this shakes out in November for you. It's sort of the opposite problem, or at least for the opposite party in the Peach State. It is. And, you know, Raphael Warnock has to look at this poll and say, you know, Stacey Abrams, who spends a lot of money and gets out and about, is trailing significantly to Governor Kemp, and yet I'm, I've got a lead. I will say that voters who are enthusiastic, it narrows. Uh, the lead is only three um, who are certain to vote in 2022. Uh, I think that, you know, if you're looking at a situation in Georgia where Republicans rally, uh, Herschel Walker benefits in that situation. Sure. And, you know, we talk about waves. It doesn't have to be a wave. It just has to be a ripple for some of these candidates to move the needle two, three points. And then it changes the dynamic for the Senate. I mean, you have a, a race out in Washington with Patty Murray trying to hold on her to her seat, she's only up four in the state of Washington uh, in a Senate race out there. So if there is any momentum for Republicans by the time you get to November, you really could be looking at changing uh, the course of control by one, two, maybe three seats. I know you spent some of your career down there in Georgia and Atlanta, and it's just amazing. I was actually in bed last night thinking about the Senate map because this is what I do, mm -hmm. and I'm sort of moving the chess pieces around and saying, okay, well, if this happens, so let's just say Ron Johnson is able to win in Wisconsin. I know there's a Wisconsin poll coming tonight. We'll see what Fox polling shows. In a lot of the other polling, Johnson is absolutely surging ahead. We'll see if that plays out here in, in our numbers. But let's say he holds that seat for the Republicans. Let's say the Republicans don't blow seats in Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, maybe some of these other ones that are at least somewhat close. All else being equal, if they can win in Nevada, 
but they can't quite get over the top in Pennsylvania. Yet again, we have <laughs> a a whole election cycle coming down to the state of Georgia again. That's right. Georgia, I think you could look to Arizona. You know, that would be a tight race. But again, those are two states in 2020 that we're, we're wait, we were waiting on. I've... I've got some flashbacks about Arizona. Yes, yes. I wasn't uh, <laughs> going to mention it. I don't know what you're talking about, actually, Brett. Do we do we want to get the decision desk? Uh, no, no, no. We're gonna we're gonna ask this question instead because it's an interesting phenomenon, and something that you just said sparked the thought. If you look at some of these races in close states or interesting states, at least New Hampshire, Ohio, Georgia. We talked about Kemp's numbers looking very strong. He's the incumbent Republican. In Ohio, Mike DeWine, the governor, he's up 15 points, 20 points in some of these polls to win re-election in Ohio. New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, I saw a poll today. He's up, I think, 16 points to get re-elected in New Hampshire. But the guy running against Maggie Hassan, who's never run before, yeah, he's, he's down 10 in that same poll. In Ohio, J.D. Vance, I think, will win, but he's lagging 12 points behind Mike DeWine. And in Georgia, there's at least something of a gap between Kemp and Herschel Walker. These Republican governors are crushing it in these states, and Mm -hmm. the Senate candidates aren't quite there. I wonder what your theory is on that. Well, either they're not good campaigners, uh, they're new to the game. All three are new, actually, on the Senate side. And um, anecdotally, I've heard that J.D. Vance is not the best on the stump. He's very thoughtful and kind of esoteric, uh, but not really like a campaigner on the stump. Um, maybe that makes a difference. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe they're not good fundraisers and they can't have they haven't deployed all of their money yet. There's a lot of bullets still yet to fire uh, as far as ads go. You know, once you start seeing a lot of ads that take up the airwaves, it, you know, there's a diminishing point of returns, yep. but it does move a little bit. And remember, these have not had debates as of yet. We have not seen debates. Uh, there's been a, a reluctance uh, by some candidates that are ahead to do it. And we're trying to get town halls and debates on the books and uh, in negotiations with a couple of these these races. Intriguing. But yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. In New Hampshire, in Ohio, in Georgia, in Arizona, these are all first time Senate candidates. They've never run for anything before. And so that might explain a little bit of the lag, I, I guess, you know, potentially. Since we're talking about Ohio, I did see this story. I'm not sure if you saw it. Tim Ryan, who's the Democrat running uh, in that race. He's a sitting congressman right now. He just used, I believe, yesterday this proxy voting thing that they've been doing in the House. Pelosi did it for COVID, where you could literally like phone in or mail in your vote through colleagues. And it was about a public health emergency in a pandemic. Now, the Biden administration is trying to argue in some ways that the pandemic's over on certain policies where that would help them. And then not on the student loans. Exactly. On, On other things, they're saying, no, the pandemic isn't over. And Pelosi just extended the proxy voting in the House, not allowed in the Senate, only in the House, through Election Day and beyond. Tim Ryan was just proxy voting due to COVID while he was out on the West Coast fundraising for himself in California. I feel like that would be an interesting one for him to have to explain. No, 100 percent. And there have been some uh, lawmakers who voted from the south of France. Yep. I saw Uh, one was on a boat, which looked lovely. It looked lovely. Uh, I. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I. I, I. Um, so, yeah. And the extension of that comes literally one week after Biden says, President Biden says on 60 Minutes that the pandemic's over and follows 
one week after the student loan program is based on emergency pandemic authority by the Department of Education. So it doesn't all make sense. It doesn't all fit. And I think it is a campaign issue, um, how they deal and talk about it electorally, politically. Uh, they don't want COVID to dominate, but to get some policies and some things to continue, they have to say it is. Yeah, it seems like a pretty easy layup there for J.D. Vance to say, all right, Tim, is the pandemic over or not? Do you agree with Biden since you always do? You vote with him 100 percent of the time. Do you agree with him that it's over? And if so, why are you proxy voting and not showing up for work? Because of a pandemic and you're out in Hollywood fundraising as Mr. Blue Collar, you know, independent. That I mean, it's pretty clean hit there. Mm-hmm. See if Ryan has to answer that question from anyone. You know, if J.D. Vance, um, history would tell you in Ohio, because it's really trended red, that he should be in a good position by the time Election Day rolls around. But if Tim Ryan wins that seat, that will be quite a race that he has run. To, oh. to, I mean, if, if he pulls that off... That will be pretty amazing to do. And I would say to our audience in Ohio, and we have a new affiliate in Ohio, uh, that can't happen. If if Tim Ryan wins that race in Ohio, the Senate is absolutely gone, and the Democrats might expand their majority. So, I mean, it has to get done. Don't just assume it's going to happen because DeWine's up big and Trump won it by eight or nine points. People need to turn out with a sense of urgency. This is my personal editorial. I'll, I'll just cover it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I, Brett, Brett's doing the news side. I'm doing the commentary side. Brett, I do want to ask you about this sort of this puzzling thing that happened yesterday at the White House. We talked about it a little bit here. It's blown up into kind of a, a kerfuffle. President Biden was at this event. He's looking around the room asking if a congresswoman is present. Jackie Walorska, she's definitely not present because she died in a car accident horribly, tragically last month. It was a bad mistake, whether it was Biden forgetting or a staffing error, having her name on some list he was reading from. It was it was a bad moment that that shouldn't happen. It seems to me that the White House made it a lot worse by sending the press secretary out to sort of pretend that he didn't screw up. It wasn't a mistake. He meant to do it because she just kept saying top of mind over and over again. And it seems like whatever they were trying to go with that spin it backfired. That's at least my read on it. It was, it weird. was bizarre. And they were very fortunate that a hurricane was coming in in Florida and every cable channel was dealing wall to wall with hurricane coverage uh, down in Florida because, honestly, that White House briefing, that was the most engaged because I watched the whole thing. I was the most engaged I'd seen the White House press corps. There have been all these controversies, all these things, but they were so engaged because every time the White House press secretary said, well, she was just top of mind and he's going to meet with the family on Friday, it enraged them even more. It made no sense. And it made no sense. So then all these people said, well, top of mind, but why did he think she was alive and in the room? Right. And so – I do think that there is um, there have been more and more of these gaffes. And obviously, when you see the president walk off today at the FEMA press conference, he just walked up and they said, Mr. President, Mr. President, this way. It does not look good. And the images don't look good. And on the same day, uh, Vice President Harris is over on the DMZ and says, we have a wonderful, longstanding relationship with the regime of North Korea. And and it's, you know, it's unbelievable the the amazing gaffes that are pretty big that I think through the prism of 
the media covering a Republican administration oh. would be front and center for quite some time. I suspect you're right. And we'll have that sound from the vice president a little bit later on. Very quickly, Brett, before you go, I learned something about you this week. Your very first concert, Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Same with me. How about that? Billy and Elton, actually. I saw them together, which wow. is pretty great. I was the early days. Well, Billy Joel, a Billy Joel concert is a great experience. It you is. said you're more of a Rush guy. Though. I was as a kid. All I right. was a Rush guy. This was a combination, Billy Joel and Rush. I mean, you didn't see them in concert together. <laughs> yeah, they, not side by side. <laughs> I'm going to a concert tonight, actually. I'll talk about that later in the show. Brett Bayer, see you tonight on TV. You bet. Thanks. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. We are back here on the Guy Benson Show. Special thanks to Brett Bayer for spending that time with us. Jessica Tarloff coming up in the next hour. Jason Rance in our final hour as well. So much to get to here on the program where our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. So we've been talking a lot about the economy, inflation, those issues. It's the top combined issue for sure in this election in terms of concern for voters, And now poll after poll has shown nationally that Republicans have a substantial advantage on those issues. So if you're trying to get a handle on how the wind might be blowing ahead of November, I think that's a pretty good indicator. And relatedly, I saw this headline from CNN just today. Revised GDP data shows U.S. economy shrank in the second quarter, solidifying two straight quarters of contraction. So I guess we obviously saw the second consecutive quarter of negative growth in Q2. We had a big fight over what that meant. And then with more data coming in and they've revised the numbers, it is, yes, once again affirmed and confirmed that we had back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth in the United States, contraction. If only there were a term – that we could use even a single word that describes such a situation, back-to-back quarters of negative economic growth. I feel like it would be helpful to our national discourse if we could use a word like that. Like recession, for example, which is the definition we've all used forever until a few months ago when a lot of people on the Democratic side of the media decide, oh, maybe it's not so applicable after all. Well, we'll see how the numbers play out over the coming weeks and months. Another hour coming up. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Guy Benson. Our website here, GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free, on demand every day. Catch me tonight on Special Report with Brett Bayer and the whole panel. I think it's Jeff Mason, Hugh Hewitt, and yours truly, along with Brett, who was here with us last hour, right around 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time. That's on Fox News Channel. Fox News alert as we begin this middle hour, the Dow way down today. So a rebound yesterday. We asked Sandra Smith about that. She said it might be a blip. Well, that's what it seems like because it crashed right back down today, closing in the red by 458 points, ending the day at 29,225. With us now is Jesse Tarloff, Fox News contributor, co-host of The Five, 
head of research at Bustle. And here at the show, she is also our chief romance and baby correspondent for all sorts of different reasons. She's highly qualified. Jesse, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. Uh, you are also, based on what I read in the Los Angeles Times, a star. Big, uh, big profile piece of you in the L.A. Times about your career at Fox, your role on the air. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Pretty big deal. Well, you know me. The biggest deal around. Um, no, uh, <laughs> hat tip to media relations. Uh, they did a fantastic job. Um, but it was awesome. I did the interview a couple weeks ago, and um, the LA Times came and sat through a taping of the show and did some custom photos. I believe appropriately face-tuned uh, my face and evened out my skin, and, you know, everything looks peachy. Um, but, yeah, it was great. We uh, talked a lot about my background, and the piece has a lot, especially about my dad, which was very meaningful for me. Um, and then kind of, you know, what the special sauce of the five is. Um, and, yeah, it was just a wide-ranging, delightful discussion. So um, thank you. Were you happy with the way it came out? Because I know sometimes people get interviewed and they'll get profiled and the story comes out and they're like, oh, boy, this is yeah. not what I was looking that for. What I thought. Yeah. Yeah. But you're uh, happy. No, not this time. I, I actually no one has even pointed out something that they're like, no, like that, you know, it'd be better without this. I didn't no. I, I really wouldn't change much about it. Obviously, there were things that we talked about. Um, the interview ran about 90 minutes that didn't make it into the piece. Um, but I was happy with everything that the writer chose. And I thought um, that it painted, you know, what I've been doing, um, you know, at the network in a very positive light. And it, the crux of it is really grappling with the question of, um, you know, is it worthwhile for Democrats to be, on a conservative network, you know, are you, is anyone listening basically to what you have to say? And I, I think, yes, um, that they are. And the five actually has very high liberal and independent viewership, um, which is something uh, that we actually have across a lot of Fox programming, but it's especially true of the five. Um, so I feel like there are persuadables out there um, and that they're at least giving my ideas, uh, you know, mm -hmm. a look. So that's a mm -hmm. good thing. No, 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 I think that's right, and I think having a multiplicity of voices and perspectives is good, even though much of our opinion programming leans to the right, no question. I think it's important to have different perspectives, and, and you provide that. That's why we like having you here on this show as well. People can go and check out this story about Jessica Tarloff in the L.A. Times. And by the way, one thing that I saw that you said there that I just want to linger on for just a second before we move on to politics of the day, it's worth underscoring this because I get questions about this too – and I think it's it merits a little bit of comment from both of us. One of the reasons that I really like being here at Fox, and I've been here now for nine years, which is sort of unbelievable to say out loud that it's been that long, never once ever in that time has anyone in leadership at this network tried to tell me what I can or cannot think or say on the air, ever. It is always up to me. And, and my conscience and, and my critical thinking to come on the air and say what I believe, whether I'm right or wrong, there's never been – and I've never felt any effort to pressure me on anything or to nudge me in a direction or explicitly tell me certainly that that has never happened. And I think sometimes people assume not just Fox but like in this world 
there are people sort of given a script or there's talking points that go out and we're only going to do this or we're going that direction and get on board. That has not been what I've experienced. There's been complete editorial independence. And that is extremely valuable to me. And I feel like if it weren't the case, I wouldn't want to be here. And I know that you address some of that in this piece as well, coming from the other side of the ideological uh, ideological spectrum. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is one of the most common misperceptions or misconceptions. I'm not sure. I guess those are fine, but one might be better um, about what goes on. And I know that there's also, you know, like there was a reputation from it from the Ailes era. And there's obviously we're living in a very different era um, under Suzanne. Scott, our CEO, um, and I think it's just important to dispel those notions and to talk about what it's really like to work at Fox. And I think that for a company that's, you know, so widely covered and where movies and shows and all of that is made about what goes on here, when you have the opportunity to be able to set the record straight and to say it in your, you know, your own voice, your own, you know, your own style that that matters and i talked a lot to the reporter about you know big days like the piece quotes our conversation about the when the dobbs ruling came down but you know january 6th um you know elections etc um and just how important it is actually um for the producers and the production staff and everybody to make sure that the voices that our viewers have come to, maybe they don't love them necessarily, but certainly to have been part of the fabric are actually protected. Right. Um, And they want to make sure that the diversity of opinions are covered um, and that everyone has their chance to speak. And on that front and on that score, let's move on to politics and President Biden. I've been kind of amazed by this, that he keeps doing this two or three times now. He has at events claimed that the average gas price for an average gallon of gasoline in the country is below three dollars. And he said at one point that was in 41 states plus D.C. Then he said it was in some states. The truth is that's true in in no states. And in fact, we're now on the ninth consecutive day of gas prices going up on average in the country, some north of $5 a gallon, every state north of $3 a gallon. It just seems like, I don't know if he heard something incorrect and it burrowed into his brain, so he keeps saying it, but it's such an obviously wrong and fact-checkable thing. I just don't know how he thinks it helps him or why he keeps saying something that's obviously factually wrong that people in their own lives experience is factually wrong when he says it. I just wonder what you think of that. I think that Biden certainly doesn't play along in the world that, you know, we live it with fact checking and this pushback on it. And he uses a lot of euphemisms, right? He talks in generalities and it's part of a style that people like about him, right? That kind of casual, like, come on, man, thing that he, right. That he does. Um, I don't find it particularly great, mostly because I have to sit there and answer for it, um, which is annoying. When well, you're no, like, look, you're oh, not him, talk- right? You're not him, but you are a supporter of his, a voter of his. You're on the left. And, and yeah, and look, he can be easy breezy with some of these weird things and come on, man. But in this case, it was a very specific thing. He said in 41 states plus the District of Columbia, the average ca- uh, cost for a gallon of gasoline is below two ninety nine. That is a very specific statistic that is absolutely incorrect in every way. I I don't disagree with you. I think that he 
someone gave it to him or he misread it. I, I, I'm not sure what happens there. Are, there are so many things between the president and his team that, like, don't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. You know, like when everyone has to play cleanup after these interviews, like, you know, are we going to war for Taiwan or, you know, the, where it just doesn't make sense. And so I don't really have a good answer for it. The gas prices have been going in a good direction. I know that the last couple of days it's ticked up a little bit. Um, but obviously we're, you know, out of the midst of the 5 and $6 gallons um, and headed it into the threes, still the fours in some places. Um, I, I don't and fives. know. Yeah. So, no, I, I mean, that's a fair answer. You don't know. It's just it just seems like someone should grab him by the lapels and say you can't say that because gas prices are actually back up for nine straight days. And nowhere is it true what you're talking about uh, in the U.S. You said you are occasionally sort of uh, baffled by what's going on between the president and his team and some of the things that are said. So I do have to ask you about this. We were chatting about it last hour with Brett Bayer, this very weird incident yesterday where President Biden obviously forgot that Congresswoman Jackie Walorski, a Republican from Indiana, had died in a shocking car accident last month, along with two young staffers. And he was at an event where he was mentioning her as one of the lawmakers who was working on nutrition and hunger issues. And he shouted several of them out who were present. And then he was looking for her in the room and asking if she was there, which she clearly was not because she's she's passed away and he had put out a proclamation or you know a statement about that after she died they're having the family to the white house later in the week to to honor her memory and if he had just forgotten that she was dead obviously that's a bad thing to forget maybe a staffer put together a piece of paper with people who might be there and it was bad staffing and they included her name which they shouldn't have done it's unclear what happened there it was a bad mistake to make but i don't know what your take is on this jesse but for the press secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre to come out the way that she did and spar with the press for a long time where she was sticking with this argument that, oh, no, he did this on purpose and didn't misspeak because she was top of mind was at least to me totally nonsensical in terms of the explanation. And she just kept saying it over and over again, making it worse and almost seeming to me like they know that there's a problem here and they want to just sort of pretend that it doesn't exist which only almost in my mind like exacerbated things from your perspective where do you come down on this little incident this little episode I completely agree with you it was a very easy opportunity i think to say that he misspoke especially because he was meeting with the family later that week i think that was a really easy needle to thread is that how you say right. it? to just say the president misspoke he had been thinking about Jackie and her family because he was due to meet with them a couple of days later um, and we apologize. You know, he he spoke out, um, had very nice words about her when she did pass away. And these right. things happen. I mean, there are a lot of things going on in his head. Like he's managing. There's a, a hurricane that destroyed, you know, parts of Southwest Florida. Has the regular business of being the president, et cetera. I, I thought it was a really easy, easy win. Um, yeah, pretty. Or we're not a win, but like an easy cleanup, right? You can clean it up pretty easily by saying exactly what you just said. He misspoke. It he the president obviously knows that 
she passed away in the context. It slipped his mind. He's got a lot on his mind. He was thinking about her because the family's coming in. Uh, we regret it. We hope we haven't added to any pain of the family. We look forward to seeing them and honoring her legacy on Friday or whatever. And just leave it at that. We apologize. It was a mistake. The president misspoke. But instead, it's like, oh, no, she was top of mind. That's why he did it. And it's not weird at all. And again, I don't want to like play a, a psychologist here on the air, although you're a romance and baby correspondent. So I feel like I'll just I'll sort of do this for a second. At least like my husband is not very political. I showed him what Biden said and then part of the press conference with KJP. And he kind of winced at what Biden said. And then he his jaw dropped at the spin from the White House. And his reaction was, it's like they know that he forgot it. And they want to make it seem like he's not getting forgetful because they're like overly defensive. And it just makes it seem like they're covering up the fact that they think that he's slipping. And that was his reaction. I think there's something to that. So I don't like speculating. I didn't speculate about Trump's mental state. I don't, that's just not where I play. I can understand Adam's perception of that or that some people would feel that way. But I think that there's something larger about what how Karine Jean-Pierre has taken on this job versus previous press secretaries. Um, and she seems to subscribe to the, like, Twitter wars approach to press secretarying, which is never admit any fault, never back down. It doesn't matter, right? And I think that's how she's approached so many issues where it would be quite easy to be conciliatory about it, right? Or to even say, like to Peter Ducey, our reporter, you know, they talk all the time about the border. I I understand where you're coming from. It's a terrible thing, obviously, these fentanyl overdoses. We need to do more X, Y, and Z things, right, without conceit without saying yes we have you know wild open borders or whatever you know whatever the uh the talking point du jour might be about it and this hardened stance to or aversion to admitting that even the tiniest thing is a little mistake i think then almost makes it like a house of cards that all tumbles down you know what i mean like there was yeah the the credibility just is not there and It's not even like she's not being candid, but being smooth about it. She's being not candid and obviously spinning in a totally non-credible way and also doing so in a very sort of stilted, ham-fisted way, which is like the worst of all worlds. That's sort of my perception of it. Uh, I'm not putting words in your mouth, but overall, it seems like you're not totally enamored with her approach either. We've got to leave it there for now. Jesse Tarloff, star of the five. You got to read about her in the Los Angeles Times. Jesse, always good to have you here. Thank you so much, Guy. (laughs) All right, you bet. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. I saw this story at hotair.com about a new Inspector General report, HHS, looking into the, at times, scandalous treatment of unaccompanied minor children at Fort Bliss related to the border crisis, obviously. And there was bad press about it. I know that they've you know, restructured and reshuffled some stuff as a result of some of the whistleblowing, but the IG finally wrapped up its investigation, put out a report, and it confirmed that a lot of it was bad and ugly and te- you know, deeply dysfunctional. And some of the details are hard to read. 
Now, part of it is this is what you get when a border is overrun and the system is overwhelmed, which is what's happening because of this crisis, directly attributable to this administration's policies. Right. That's the number one thing that needs to be said about it. But I'll also just say I remember that when the Obama administration was building the cages, quote unquote, that they put kids in, there really wasn't much of an outcry on the left. Then when the Trump administration was using the quote unquote cages during their sort of spikes in this problem when it would flare up, it became a huge thing for the media, for the Democratic Party. And then there's been these allegations now confirmed by the IG under the Biden administration. And weirdly, there's been no field trip for AOC down to one of these facilities where she put on the white pantsuit and did a photo shoot as she wept looking at a parking lot to show how deeply she cared about the kids in the cages. Kamala Harris didn't go down there and decry the, what was it, like crimes against humanity, human rights abuses perpetrated by the government. That's what she did when she was a senator running for president under Trump. Now she's the border czar. We'll talk about that again later. Can't be bothered to show up or say a word about this stuff. It's just hard not to be cynical about the calculation and the politics here. I think it speaks for itself. I have more to say on the border crisis. We'll get to that. You don't want to miss it next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Glad to have you here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free if you miss us on the radio live as we air. I would like to address a few things that were said a couple days ago by former President Barack Obama, who has not really taken the apolitical post-presidency route. He's actually quite political and occasionally pops up to demagogue on something. I know that he became sort of this high-flying, famous national figure with a stratospheric rise by talking about hope and change and unity and bemoaning the duality of blue states versus red states where the United States, that is how he exploded onto the scene in 2004. At that point, he wasn't even yet a U.S. senator. Then he decided to run for president and became president four years later after the 2008 election. And... I know in his mind and in his branding, it's sort of like this transformational, uplifting figure, but he can really be a very nasty piece of work, politically speaking, when he wants to be. And he would attack his opponents in, I would say, very demagogic and unfair ways, frequently. He was the master of constructing straw men and then burning down the straw man. As if he understood what Republicans really believed for all sorts of terrible reasons. And he was just the sensible person coming in to make sure that they didn't get their evil way. And on matters of race, he would sometimes be rather nuanced and careful. Other times he would use it as a weapon. And we've seen him, even after he left office, really leaning into the racial demagogue role on a number of occasions, including infamously at the funeral of John Lewis where he used the opportunity of giving a eulogy to give this left-wing barn burner of a speech calling for all these leftist power grabs, including getting rid of the filibuster, which he called a Jim Crow relic, even though he himself had been an enthusiastic practitioner of the filibuster when it fit his political needs and interests, because that is classic Barack Obama. And he would 
passionately argue for something in this high-minded seeming way and then completely flip-flop on it and he would make it seem like oh it was really because he's just so virtuous that he had to change his mind when in fact it's always about power with him so that whole lead up is just kind of the backdrop that I wanted to set in place obviously I was not a big fan of his presidency he gave a speech in San Diego California on Sunday And at one point, he was talking about the Republican Party, their agenda, their messaging. And he brought up the border crisis, although he didn't use those words. And he framed it, I think, in a way that is not only obsolete, but also deeply unfair and actually quite offensive to a lot of people. But many on the left absolutely believe this to be true. I think it's lazy. I think it's cheap. But this is the direction that he went. Cut 27. I will say that right now. The biggest fuel behind uh, the Republican agenda is related to immigration and the fear that somehow America's character is going to be changed if people of darker shades, there are too many of them here. Mm. Mm. So what's really driving the Republican agenda is immigration and the fear of too many dark-skinned people. In short, racism. The Republicans are motivated by the border crisis because they are racist and fear people of different skin colors. Now, there's many different responses that I would like to give, and I plan to here. Before we do that, here's a little flashback of Barack Obama as a candidate in 2007. So this is the 08 cycle, and he was actually attacking President Bush and the Bush administration on the border and on immigration. Listen to Cut 28. This administration, the Bush administration, has done nothing to control the problem that we have. Uh, We've had five million undocumented workers come over the borders uh, since George Bush took office. Uh, It has become an extraordinary problem. And the reason the American people are concerned is because they are seeing their own economic position slip away. Oh, so that last bit is sort of like, look at all these um, immigrants pouring over the borders, taking American jobs, their own economic position slipping away because of these immigrants. If I wanted to give Barack Obama a taste of his own medicine here, I could call that a very xenophobic statement. I won't because I don't think that's fair, but that's how he was talking about this in 2007, amazingly attacking Bush and the Bush administration over the extraordinary problem. That's what he called it, an extraordinary problem. Because 5 million illegal immigrants, he called them undocumented because that was the thing that you say on the left, but 5 million of them had come over the border since Bush took office. That was roughly seven-plus years into the Bush administration. Now, were the incentives nearly as strong back then? No. Were there all these limits on deporting anyone, even if you are convicted of subsequent crimes? No. Did DHS and Border Patrol have half of its manpower tied up, processing people constantly with an arm tied behind their collective back so they couldn't really enforce the law? No. Did you have anywhere close to the level of the current crisis happening under President Bush or Obama or Trump, for that matter, or anyone else compared to right now under Biden? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the numbers right now between known gotaways plus The encounters and apprehensions at the border last year and now this year, you add them all up, you're right around 5 million illegal crossings under President Biden. 
Barack Obama called it an extraordinary problem when there were five million crossings over almost eight years under Bush. We're already at that level approximately less than two years into the Biden administration. I wonder if Obama today would call that an extraordinary problem. I mean, it's an order of magnitude worse. It's not even close. It is a crisis unlike we've ever seen before in this category. Blowing away records. But according to Obama today, those of us who are on the right, who care about that, it's really because we are fearful that America is going to change because of darker skinned people. I wonder how he would reconcile his comments in 2007 with what he just said in this smear about Republicans a few days ago. In those same remarks in San Diego, Obama also said that Republicans' rhetoric and language on immigration is, quote, dangerous for the country. And I have to ask this. Is it more or less dangerous than the record number of deaths at the border among migrants, hundreds of them this year? People drowning, people being killed, people baking alive in the back of a truck. We've never seen this level of death down there. Is the rhetoric calling out the problem more dangerous than all those deaths of migrants, the dark-skinned people that you're so concerned about, Mr. Former President? Is the rhetoric more or less dangerous than the record number of convicted felons and suspected terrorists that we know of that are being caught at the border, with countless others getting away as known and unknown gotaways? Last month, there were a dozen people on the FBI suspected terrorist watch list who were caught at the southern border trying to enter the country illegally. We have no idea among the tens of thousands of known gotaways, 50 to 60,000. We have no idea how many of those people were on that watch list or had previous convictions for serious felonies. Now, is that less dangerous than the words Republicans are using because they're alarmed by all of this? You would think so. Listening to Barack Obama. Is the Republican rhetoric more or less dangerous than the absolute deluge of drugs entering this country through the southern border, particularly fentanyl? Fentanyl is now the number one cause of death in young Americans. Number one. Nothing is killing young Americans more than fentanyl which we know is being smuggled in huge quantities across the border. We are interdicting some of it. But certainly not all of it. The cartels have started to make it look like Skittles, like rainbow colored, which is scary for anyone with children. Does that count as more or less dangerous, Mr. Obama, than Republicans talking about the border crisis? Now, as someone who is a conservative, who was not always this hawkish on immigration, the current scandalous crisis is what has pushed me to this point where we talk about it so much. Where some of my policy preferences, like the DREAM Act and a path to legalization, I'm not abandoning those forever. I think there's some fairness there. I don't think we can even come close to having that conversation as long as the spigot is on the way that it is. I've said it before. I'll say it again. All of that has to stop. The conversation, in my mind, stops on the bipartisan, comprehensive stuff until we actually get operational control sustainably of our southern border. I am not someone who's been beating on this drum as a right-wing, fire-breathing dragon for years. I'm just not. But having gone down there, seen this crisis, reported on it, 
done the show from there, talking to officials, talking to affected people in those communities, and looking at the numbers. It is out of control. And it is absolutely offensive. I actually find it personally offensive for Barack Obama, the postpartisan healer of yesteryear, to come out and suggest, really, that someone like me who says these things and I'm upset about these things and I think that this is completely unacceptable for our national sovereignty, for our public safety, for our immigration process on the matter of fairness, making a mockery of people who are trying to do it the right way. And because I believe those things, apparently in the mind of Barack Obama, it's really just because of my latent fear of people whose skin is darker than my own. That is a really disgusting thing to say, actually. Two million encounters at the border this year alone. Two million in a year. Plus about a million known gotaways since Biden took office. It's crazy. I went through the death statistics. I talked about the drugs, about the national security implications. And I guess Barack Obama just feels like he can wave all of that away with the back of his hand by playing the race card and making it about skin color and race, which I find repugnant. And by the way, since you raised this, Mr. Former President, since you insisted upon making this racial, I must ask, have you been sleeping through the last year or so when it comes to some of the realignments happening in our politics? According to one exit poll, Glenn Youngkin in Virginia won the Hispanic vote last year. Hispanics across New Jersey shifted dramatically away from the Democrats last year. Down along the Rio Grande, in Texas, border communities, overwhelmingly Hispanic, dark-skinned people, Mr. President, since that's apparently how you think about folks, just sorting them into little categories and silos based on immutable characteristics, if that's the way you want to think about it, down along the Rio Grande, there has been a seismic change in the politics down there. Republicans flipped a border district in Congress from blue to red, electing a Latina who is running against the border policies of your vice president, now the president, Joe Biden. You've had other state level elected officials, Hispanics, longtime Democrats, just switching parties to the Republicans because they see the way things are going down there. McAllen, Texas, elected a Republican mayor. And across the country, as you're seeing in a lot of the polling, the Hispanic vote is now up for grabs. It was for a while, especially during the Obama coalition years, a reliably Democratic constituency. Not so much anymore. Where Republicans and Democrats, depending on what poll you look at, are neck and neck battling for the Hispanic vote. With a lot of Latinas really driving the shift, especially in Texas. Are they also scared of people who look like uh, themselves? Are they scared of dark-skinned people who look exactly like them in terms of their melanin levels? Are the Hispanics of America who are marching rightward, are they also part of this racist cabal, terrified that people of their own ethnic and racial background might be overrepresented and change the country? Does that make any sense? Or do we not want to think too hard about that? Do we not want to think too hard about people of color moving in the Republican direction because of a whole host of issues, one of which is the chaos at the border that law-abiding Hispanic people in America do not like because it is devastating their communities. 
These are things that apparently Barack Obama has not thought too hard about. He's out there making, I have no idea how much money he made for this speech. Sure, it was a very pretty penny. And he sort of rolled in and decided, well, let's just go ahead and slime the Republican Party as racists. And that's my little tidy in a box explanation of the backlash against the border crisis. It only has to ignore all the reality that I just laid out. But maybe that's not the world that Barack Obama inhabits at this point. It's still not an excuse for what he said, which is why I wanted to take an opportunity to respond on substance and in depth, because that was an attack, a broad-based, broad-strokes attack on the Republican Party, but it also felt personal to me and anyone in this audience who shares these concerns. We talked earlier in the week about Pete Buttigieg indignantly saying, oh, these, these Republicans have no solutions. They just attack and they do these stunts. He was going after Ron DeSantis. Of course, they do have solutions. Pete and the Democrats just don't like them. What's Barack Obama's solution? Seems like all he has is racial attacks. Does Obama support the Biden administration and their policies here and their outcomes, the results, the humanitarian and national security and public safety and national sovereignty crisis that has been unleashed across the country? Or is this just sort of an opportunity to go back into the old, I would say, totally outmoded talking points of years ago to impugn the motives of people who disagree with him, which is very much in character for this guy. So I've said my piece. I'll take a break, and I'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on the Guy Benson show, I went a little long in my monologue there about Barack Obama, but actually this ties in well since we're talking about the border crisis. Kamala Harris, the vice president, was at the border. She is the border czar after all. Unfortunately, just not that border. She was not at the U.S. southern border, where she's only been as vice president once for about two minutes in a secure area. No, she was at the border between South and North Korea in the demilitarized zone, the DMZ. I'm sort of mystified as to why she was sent there. I think she wanted to sort of establish her foreign policy bona fides. She thinks she's going to be president at some point, and she's going to go there and be a statesman or a stateswoman. But just like an episode of Veep, she had to screw something up very badly. You can imagine her handler saying, don't forget the difference between North and South Korea. We support the South one, not the North one. She's like, oh, I got it, because she's always so well-prepared and well-informed. So she strode up to the microphones in the DMZ, and she said, uh, oops, cut 18. So the United States shares a very important relationship, which is an alliance with the Republic of North Korea. And it is an alliance that is strong and enduring. And today there were several demonstrations of just that point. Yes, our enduring alliance with the Republic of North Korea. Got the wrong one, Madam Vice President. The official White House transcript cleaned it up, striking the word North, just the Republic of Korea, were allied with the South. She had two options. She blundered. Of course she did. But there was our border czar at a border, not the border, where there's so much trouble. And she couldn't even get out of there without one giant, glaring, hysterical mistake. So a tip of the cap. Well said and well done as usual, Madam Vice President. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Jason Rance on the crime wave and the politics of crime straight ahead. 
It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Thursday on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for joining us. Always appreciate it. Our final hour, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern time right here. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss any of the program as we air, you can always get the podcast for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Delicious, refreshing, in fact, Miles Teller, big movie star. He's in the new Top Gun movie. He was on with Jimmy Fallon last night on The Tonight Show. We're more of a Gutfeld household, honestly, but he was on. And he's one of the investors in Long Drink, and they talked about it, and they drank some of the product on the air, he and Jimmy Fallon. So that was kind of cool. TheLongDrink.com is their website, TheLongDrink.com. You can find out where it's sold near you as they expand. You can order online. Always drink responsibly, 21-plus only. Joining us now is Jason Rance, host of the Jason Rance Show on KTTH out in the Pacific Northwest, Seattle, Tacoma, our great affiliate out there. He's also crime correspondent for Tucker. And Jason, it is great to have you back here. Thank you for having me. I am looking forward to the end of this day to enjoy a long drink zero. Zero carbs. There we go. Yes. Long drink zero. No sugar. It is my favorite variety, if you will. Even varietal, I'll say that. And I'm glad that you and I are on the same page there. Jason, I want to talk about crime and as it's playing out, not just in the streets and impacting people in public safety, but the way it's making a mark on the 2022 election cycle. We've talked now multiple times this week about Jen Psaki, the former spokeswoman for Biden, admitting that this is a big vulnerability for Democrats. That was when she was on Meet the Press on Sunday. Democrats, I think, by their own actions, recognize that to be true. So Gavin Newsom, for example, out in California... He is trying to spin this thing as a Republican problem in Republican states. And the idea that Democrats are the soft on crime party, he says, is wrong. It's obviously a manipulated series of stats that he rattles off. But let's just listen before we address. This is Cut 22 on MSNBC. Eight of the top 10 states with the highest murder rates, all are Republican states. How do Democrats not know that? In fact, it's really nine out of 10 Georgia went for Biden, but it's really a Republican state, or at least a red state. Eight out of 10. And we're losing that message? Crime is higher, as well as taxes here for the average uh, citizen in Texas. It's higher crime, higher violent crime and property crimes than in the state of California. 67% higher gun death rate in Texas. Why don't we push back? Why are we Why don't why, why, why don't we? I do don't know. All right, Jason, let's just start with this. The claim from Newsom... Number one, he snuck in there that taxes are higher in Texas, which is just simply untrue. People are not fleeing California to Texas in search of higher taxes. That's not reality. But he's saying, look, if you look at the top 10 states of murder rates, he's taking a specific statistic. He said eight of those top 10 are Republican states. Strangely, though, Jason, he's not really addressing where those murder rates are happening And if you look at that statistic, it looks not so rosy or so much of a slam dunk talking point as he seems to think it ought to be for the Democrats. 
Yeah, it's a nonsense talking point when you actually look at what the study actually says, because what he's referring to is CBS had put this out, I believe, at the earlier this year, maybe late last year. I mean, when you look at the 10 cities that are driving the crime rates of these states, eight of them are run by Republicans and by the way, or run by Democrats. And by the way, one of them, Stockton, is in California. So he can pretend all he wants. I think most people see through this. Most people know that there is a clear crime crisis in Democrat-run cities. We all know that nationwide. And on top of that, we know exactly why it is. It's because the Democrat Party has embraced the defund police policies. And it's not just about defunding the police, of course. It was about dismantling the criminal justice system. And what they ended up doing, a lot of these policies across the country, hamstrung police. It allowed prosecutors to go easy on criminals, pushing folks into restorative justice programs instead of into jail, where some of them do belong. And going easy from a bail perspective, getting rid of cash bail. The Democrats were very good at branding themselves around BLM. And now they're suffering the consequences to the point where some of them are trying to have it both ways. I mean, when you look in Pennsylvania, for example, I think part of the reason why you're starting to see Gavin Newsom and others start to take these kinds of of strategies here, talking points, is because the polls are not going the direction that Democrats want them to. Because the second that you focus on all of the issues that impact people at home, on the ground, it goes bodes well for Republicans. So John Fetterman not doing as well as he once was. And he's trying to change his sort of history, revise his website to get rid of BLM mentions, to try to pretend that he wasn't in favor of just releasing a whole bunch of criminals at the end of the day. People are paying attention, and the longer – every single day that goes by is an extra day that someone will become a victim of one of the policies that has led to this crime crisis or at least know someone who is. And that does not help the Democrats. And I want to come back to Fetterman in Pennsylvania here in a second, but – A similar talking point to what we just heard from Newsom, which is facile, right? On the surface, you can say, oh, wow, red state problem. Then you see these are blue city problems within red states. And if you look at on the statewide level, it is a real problem, not just in the places that he mentioned, but also in deep blue states as well. People are not accidentally associating crime waves with Philadelphia and New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco, where it got so bad they threw out the left wing D.A., or Chicago and Illinois, these are not mistakes. Minnesota, Minneapolis in particular, right? This is not something that people are just inventing out of whole cloth. This is because of the political decisions made by leaders in those places leading to a steady drumbeat of disastrous outcomes for people. So Larry Krasner is the DA in Philly. He's one of these Soros guys, very similar actually to Chesa Boudin, who got tossed out by voters in SF, Krasner was challenged on his record, which has been awful. Murders spiking. I see they just got to 1,000 carjackings this year in the city of Philadelphia, a new record. 1,000 already in the year in that city. And on a local news media interview, Krasner was trying to say not only is his approach to crime working in Philadelphia, just like Newsom, he's saying this is a Trump MAGA Republican problem. Cut 20. There are multiple things going on in the system, but it has never been the case before until we had reform prosecutors where people tried to blame just one entity. We all have to work together, and the reality is that we have been more effective. And you are a reform district attorney. Everybody everybody in the country knows that. But maybe it's not working. It is working. The reality is that our 1,000 people killed in 20 months. It is working. 
The reality is, when you look at all these different jurisdictions, we've had a devastating blow from the pandemic, and there is absolutely no correlation between being progressive or traditional and the rate of crime. So just the policies make no difference is what he's trying to claim here, Jason. And when specifically asked, or at least it's suggested that his mentality, his policy platform is not working, he asserts twice it is working. And the interviewer just interjects there have been a thousand murders in 20 months, a thousand murders. I just said a thousand carjackings in the year. And Krasner looks at that and says, this is working. It's succeeding. No correlation between policies and outcomes. He went on to basically repeat the same talking points as Newsom, saying that higher crime is a red state problem. He said this is a MAGA issue. It's not about blue cities. It's Republicans who are at fault. Eight of the 10 most violent cities are Trump cities. And I'm sorry, Jason, but if you look at some of these places, Detroit, Memphis, Birmingham, Baltimore, St. Louis, Kansas City, Cleveland, Little Rock, Milwaukee, and Stockton, to say nothing of the other big cities with huge problems, nine of the 10 of them do not have Republican mayors, and eight of the 10 of them have Democratic mayors, but he's trying to call those MAGA Trump cities. Does anyone believe this? No, and and I think what's important to highlight, especially in that clip, he says it works, and then he says where it doesn't work, right? He says that the Republicans are the ones to blame. Okay, how are you judging whether or not something works? What are, what, is the, what are the statistics that Larry Krasner or anyone else is pointing to to suggest that their policies are working? Because what we've seen across the board, homicide rates going up, rape going up, petty crime going up. So across all of the different categories of crime, you're seeing general increases. So I'm not entirely sure what metrics they're looking at when they're going to tell people that things are working. And at the end of the day, people experience what they experience. It is their perception, right? There certainly have been instances in which perception does not necessarily match data. In this case, that's not the case, right? I mean, in this case, it very clearly is matching the perception, the data. So when someone who lives in Philly or LA or Seattle, wherever, and they don't feel safe walking to the park with their kids, where they don't, as a small business owner, feel safe at the end of the day, locking up, wondering whether or not there's going to be a break in the next morning, when they have that feeling and they hear a comment like that coming from either Larry Krasner or anybody else, they know it's a lie. They yeah. know that they're being manipulated. Yeah, they're not saying they're like, oh, yeah, what what a terrible Trump city problem this is. Get out of here. I mean, it's insulting. You can play games with the statistics. People understand where the crime is happening and who's going easy on those criminals. And it's not the Republican Party. This is like when they tried to pretend at the White House. Remember the lame talking point for a while that the Republicans were truly the defund the police party because Republicans didn't vote for some giant multi-trillion dollar boondoggle that had a little bit of police funding in it. So they said Republicans want to defund the police. It is very similar. It's along the same lines where they can cherry pick certain things, try to pretend that reality is upside down. But when they try to convince people of that, people are, I would say, unpersuaded why their polling is so bad right now. I mean, they've been doing this not just on crime. We don't have a, cry, uh, a crisis at the border. How many times have we been told that, despite having tons of video showing exactly the crisis and all the data showing the crisis? Inflation is not really an issue. Don't worry. It's going to go away even if you think it's an issue. They've done this over and over and over again to the point where no one is going to believe what they're saying except for the hardcore radical leftists who will 
try to champion those talking points of their own because they know truly in their heart that they're wrong. I think some folks are blinded by their ideology and they're not really seeing what it is normal people are seeing on the ground. But I also think some folks are just justifying the short-term pain because they truly believe, and I think Larry Krasner, for example, is one of them. I think he truly believes that if you stick with this long enough, things will get better. And it's worth the, the pain that's being caused right now by these policies because they believe in the long term it's going to lead to this progress aggressive movement uh, of truly understanding and re- and revising the criminal justice system to be less white supremacist in its culture uh, it, it is it's sick because they're so ideological i think most normal people regardless of whether they identify as republican democrat or they don't even identify as anything if they have a belief and they see it failing they will see people suffering and step back and say okay I made a mistake here. Let's course correct. You're still a good person because you tried to do something that in your heart you believe was going to lead to something better. But you're clearly seeing the results. Most people step back and say, I can't do this anymore, unless you're a hardcore ideologue. And unfortunately, a lot of these cities and a lot of these states are run by hardcore ideologues. Yeah, and the administration, which is why they almost never course correct. And it's like, oh, success, utopia is just around the corner. Let's ride out the failing policies just a little bit longer. Meanwhile, people are suffering. And Jason, you mentioned that Senate race in Pennsylvania. Let's get to that right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. Back with Jason Rance here on The Guy Benson Show talking crime and shifting now to the Pennsylvania Senate race where John Fetterman, the Democrat, has now scrubbed the Black Lives Matter area of his website. Very interesting. His campaign is also pushing back on Republican attacks, saying, oh, these are lies. Dr. Oz is lying about us on these various allegations about crime and what Fetterman has said in the past. The problem is, and and PolitiFact, by the way, which is a left-wing Democrat-aligned organization, they have come and provided air cover for the Fetterman campaign, saying, oh, yes, these claims are mostly false. They're not mostly false. There's one soundbite after another of Fetterman embracing this radical stuff for years on camera. It's on tape. It's not extrapolated from somewhere or sort of this half-assed, stuck-together political attack. It is Fetterman's own words. For example, this, cut 23 from an interview. If you had a magic wand and you could wave it and fix one thing, what would it be? Life without parole in Pennsylvania. We could save billions in revenue long term. We could save thousands of of lives and and not make anyone less safe. Fetterman wants to get rid of life without parole, including for murderers in that state, second degree murderers. He wants to free a third of prisoners from prisons. He said that would be safe and cost effective, letting a third of the incarcerated population out. He's favored legalizing, decriminalizing all drugs, including heroin. And now they're trying to pretend in his campaign that none of that's real. It's all a giant smear. Look at PolitiFact. The problem is the tail of the tape. He said all of this stuff. And Oz really pressing this advantage. I think it's part of the reason why Oz is on the comeback trail. The race is getting a lot closer. Here he was prosecuting the case against Fetterman on crime cut 25. Now, my opponent in this race has taken a very firm stance on these issues. And he's done it for many years. There's a reason he's called the most pro-murderer candidate running for office. He seems to care more about the criminals than the innocent, as Maureen Faulkner was alluding to. He has explicitly stated that we can get one-third of prisoners out of jail and it wouldn't make a difference. He wants to get as many out as he can. I'm quoting him. And the response, Jason, from the Fetterman campaign with their 
sort of henchman at PolitiFact, this Democrat group, is, oh, it's all a lie. It's mostly false. Don't believe those sound bites. That's not really what we believe in. And yet he said what he said. He did. I mean, look, if this was a world in which YouTube didn't exist, then they could get away with it. But the fact of the matter is PolitiFact can do all their coverage that they want, but people aren't going to PolitiFact. The normal person gets access to these videos. And again, I think you're starting to see that reflected in the polls. I mean, this was supposed to be a Fetterman race. Dr. Oz was supposedly the wrong candidate. Fetterman's only up by four points on the uh, real clear average poll. So, uh, you know, I, I tend to believe that when these races are between two, three-ish points, that it actually favors the Republicans, because I don't think that the pollsters are able to truly gauge the direction of the, the Republican voters and the voting base. I think they kind of ignore those folks. And so whenever a Republican is down by two or three points, I give them a little bit of an edge. So Fetterman up by about four points on average clearly suggests that this is neck and neck. But you can even oh, go the momentum has gotten more and more on Oz's side. Oh, absolutely. And I think the momentum, though, I think is just going for the Republicans, and Oz is getting some some lift from that. Obviously, in this case, you've got Fetterman, who clearly has some issues that, from, from a health perspective that they're going to continue to pretend aren't real. But we all know that they're real. But go ahead and look at, for example, Oregon. You've got a gubernatorial race going on where it is neck and neck in deep blue Oregon between a Democrat who's very far to the left and a Republican. It shouldn't be so close. The Republican is down by like one and a half, two points on average. For Oregon, that is telling you something. It's saying that people are experiencing the far left drift of these big cities like a Portland, like a Philadelphia. And they're saying this is enough. We, we cannot justify this anymore. And we started to see some of those hints early on. When you go ahead in San Francisco, deep blue San Francisco, and you end up recalling the DA, Chesa Boudin, because he went so far to the left. When you make significant changes at the school board level because they went so far to the left, those are Democrats who are saying that you guys are going too far. And oh, so no, Jason, I got it. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've been reliably informed this is all a Trump MAGA city problem. And San Francisco clearly fits that mold in this absolutely ludicrous, preposterous fantasy world that they're trying to create for themselves. And we'll see if voters are buying it on November the 8th. We're getting awfully close to the election. Jason Rance, host of The Jason Rance Show, KTTH in Seattle and that surrounding area, our affiliate. He's also crime correspondent for Tucker Carlson tonight. Jason, always enjoy our time together. Thank you. Love it. Thanks, man. And The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour resumes after this break. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Welcome back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier today on the program, Brett Bayer joined us here in studio, the anchor of Special Report and chief political anchor at Fox News. Good conversation with him about the upcoming midterm elections. I'll be joining him on the panel this evening on Special Report around 645 Eastern. Here's part of my conversation with Brett. What can you tell us just in terms of what we might be looking for tonight on special report in terms of these new polling numbers? Well, I think what you're what you're seeing across the board is um, a tightening of of these races. And for the early sense that uh, some Democrats were going to run away from races where Republicans were criticized for choosing the wrong candidate. All of that comes together uh, as you get closer and closer to election, in part because people start paying attention uh, fully and because more and more policies are being talked about. And uh, you're also seeing a ton of money go into these races on both sides. So there 
what we're seeing across the board is that the House seems to have shifted while the Democrats picked up uh, some momentum from the abortion, uh, the Dobbs decision and the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade. That has shifted, it seems, in the past few weeks away from Democrats and more towards Republicans as issues like crime and immigration have risen on the import for a lot of people, not just along border states, but across the country. Yeah, I keep saying that at some point and this time could be different, although Sean Trendy has a great piece today at Real Clear Politics about how the sometimes, you know, this time is different mentality often does not actually play out in reality. And for that reason, I keep talking about the fundamentals of this cycle reasserting themselves at some point. And I feel like we've actually started to see that in these last couple of weeks, certainly on the House side. And then there is sort of the other element here, which is in some of these races, why the tightening partisans start to, quote unquote, come home. And it's been difficult, for example, in Pennsylvania, where Dr. Oz squeaked through barely just a really tough bare knuckle primary and the reason he was down 10, 12 points to John Fetterman was his support among Republicans was very weak. It's starting to come up and up and up. Independents are now getting an earful about John Fetterman's record, especially on crime. And last night, the polling from our pollster found that far from a blowout, this is now a four-point race. Fetterman's still ahead, but the momentum and the win certainly behind Oz's back. That's a really interesting one because – if Oz can somehow keep this trajectory going and, and maybe overtake Fetterman, still a heavy lift, then the Republicans' path to a Senate majority is crystal clear in my mind. No, that's right. And I think uh, Pennsylvania is going to be the bellwether to watch. Uh, I think you're right in your analysis that, um, you know, candidate Joe Biden used to say, you know, my dad always told me that, you know, Joey, don't compare me to the almighty. Compare, compare me to the alternative. And that's actually what happens is even in a bruising primary like Pennsylvania, uh, where Dave McCormick really took it to Mehmet Oz, um, at some point you look towards the alternative. And those Republicans who were mad at Oz or those independents who said, I'm never voting for this guy, say, wait a second, am I voting for Lieutenant Governor Fetterman? And there's all these ads that say his policies on crime and jail and et cetera, et cetera. So – that's right. I think that 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 Republican base comes home. That's why you're looking at a race that's uh, that's within the March of Vera right now in Pennsylvania. And the momentum has shifted yep. towards Oz. I think in that governor's race, that hurts Oz because Mastriano is trailing by 11 or so. Yeah, he's he's really trailing really in that trailing. race. And so you need an awful lot of ticket splitters. And whether or not Oz can get enough of them if Mastriano gets hammered, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe. Again, the trajectory, the momentum looks good for him right now. Fetterman does not seem to have the wherewithal to really defend himself effectively, whether it's because of his health issues, but also because the record is what it is. It's very ugly. I'll be talking about that a little bit later in the show today, focusing on crime, specifically with Jason Rance. But almost the mirror opposite situation of that in terms of ticket splitting is in Georgia where the Republican incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, basically every single poll that I've seen now for a month has Kemp up by seven, eight, nine points. He's up, I believe, seven in our new poll. And yet Herschel Walker, the Republican running for Senate, is trailing by four or five against Raphael Warnock in our poll. Now, there's other polls that show Herschel slightly ahead or tied. I think that's a very close Senate race. But if you're the Warnock people and you see the Republican governor leading comfortably and you've got all these undecideds because I think even in our poll, the incumbent 
Warnock is nowhere near 50 percent. If there's a lot of undecideds out there, the president's very unpopular in the state. The Republican governor's doing well. Then you're probably wondering how this shakes out in November for you. It's sort of the opposite problem, or at least for the opposite party in the peach state. That full interview with Brett Bayer and the entirety of today's show, start to finish, available on demand for free on our podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, I'm off to a concert tonight. Split-second, last-minute decision. I bought the tickets. I'm actually excited about it, but I'm getting some major shade from some of the team here, especially a certain someone. It's Cookie, I'll just tell you. We will battle it out over her judgment right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. And the payoff. There goes Diddy Bluff. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Number 61. He ties Roger Maris for the American League single season record. Home stretch here on this Friday Eve on the Guy Benson Show. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcasts always free. John Sterling on the call. On the Yankees radio network last night in Toronto, Aaron Judge finally, after what, a week, going homerless, hit one out to left, ended up being the game-winning hit as well. That was his 61st home run of the season, tying Roger Maris for the all-time AL record. And as I've talked about before, many baseball fans consider that to be the true record because the other guys who beat the record subsequently, famously, notoriously, were on steroids, unlike Aaron Judge. So all rise for the man who has now tied the record and hopefully over the next roughly seven, I want to say, regular season games, Judge will set a new record, and that will be for the American League technically, officially, but in my mind and the minds of many others, it will be the new record for number 99 for the New York Yankees. Congratulations to Aaron. Finally, that monkey is off of his back. I wouldn't be surprised if he hits another one soon. Hopefully, the Yankees keep playing well because it's just about winning, heading into the playoffs. Meanwhile, I mentioned this at the very top of the hour here in the happy hour with Jason Rance. We were talking about how this hour is always sponsored by our friends at the Finnish Long Drink, growing rapidly, expanding the popularity through the roof, thelongdrink.com. And last night on The Tonight Show, Miles Teller, the big actor, he's an investor in The Long Drink. He was talking about the product. They drank it, actually, on the air with Jimmy Fallon, The Tonight Show. Now, we tend to be a gut-felled or bust home, at least in our neck of the woods. But this was still a pretty cool thing, talking about the long drink at some length on the air. Here's a little snippet, cut 36. You're an investor in this stuff, in this yeah. beverage called Long Drink. Right. I like this stuff, and I didn't know even that you were an investor it's in fantastic. this It's fantastic, yeah. So this, I got involved, uh, I was just... I so he starts telling the story, store. he starts informing people about what it is. It's the national beverage of Finland. It sort of tastes like a fresca. It's premium liquor, not a seltzer. I'm like, oh, our audience is very familiar with all of these talking points because we've been telling you about them for years, but still a pretty neat thing. And then they did a little cheers and they drank. And Jimmy Fallon had the long drink strong in the black can, 8.5% alcohol. He said his wife is a big fan. She is also Finnish. So just a little thing. Maybe you heard about it here first, but long drink's taken over. 
and we're proud to be a part of it. We're very proud to have them as a sponsor here on The Guy Benson Show. Now, this evening, it is still a school night. I've been trying to cut down on alcoholic beverages Sunday through Friday. And Friday night, it's sort of like, okay, weekend time. But admittedly, I'll confess, I might have an adult beverage or two this evening because I'm going to a concert. I wasn't sure if I was going to pull the trigger. I had it on my calendar as a maybe, almost a call me maybe. And I wasn't sure which direction I was going to go, yes or no, but I'm in town. There were a few seats left on StubHub. And so Adam and I are going to go see Carly Ray Jepsen tonight, actually at this venue that I've never been to in this cool area in D.C. I've always wanted to go to this theater or concert venue. And she's playing there. I saw on social media some of my friends or people that I know were at her concert in New York last night at Radio City Music Hall. And they loved it. I will say I'm not really a giant Carly Rae Jepsen fan. She is famous for Call Me Maybe, her one big smash hit. I think it's unfair to call her a one-hit wonder because she's had a few other songs that made it to the charts and had some radio play. None of those particular songs are my favorite. The whole reason I'm going to go see her is I like some of her music, but I love one of her songs. And I've gone down the rabbit hole on YouTube watching her perform this song live at Coachella and all these other places, and it looks so fun, and the audience sings along, and I just want to be a part of it. It's called Cut to the Feeling. I've talked about it on the air before. We've added it as a bumper song here. And it's one of the best pop songs I'd never heard of. I actually first heard it while I was exercising. It's on the Peloton. The instructor played it. And I thought I had discovered a brand new cutting edge hot jam. This goes beyond a bop. It goes from bop into hot jam territory as far as I'm concerned. So when I was done with the workout, I jumped off the bike and I wanted to share on social media this brand new song I discovered. Like, wow, this is really a banger. And I looked it up and it came out in like 2017, I think. So I was behind the curve on this. Apparently it was huge with the gays. I missed it because I'm the worst. Many other people had never heard it. Producer Christine is baffled that I'm going to this concert. It just seems, I guess in her mind, off brand for me. I don't know. But I told her I love this song, Cut to the Feeling. She had never heard it. I guess she was out. She was on one of her many vacations when we talked about this. And so I gave her the name of the song. She went and listened to it. And apparently she's not a fan. She does not like the song. I think she's dead wrong. Here's just the chorus in Cut 34. Christine, this is just high-quality pop. It's a great, great chorus. It builds. What is your issue with this song? I feel like it's, like, really cheesy, very corny. And I think the other song is so much better by Carly Rae. What's her name? Jepsen? I didn't even know people – I didn't even know she was still around. She's got a new album. She's got a fan base. She's selling out these venues. It's not, like, whole – basketball arenas, but thousands of tickets. She has a fan base. I'm not even really in it. I just want to see her perform live, and I want to hear that song. That song, huh. Um, yeah. I would definitely go for the Call Me Maybe song, I think. Yeah, that's I was... like that's the one that everyone knows, and 
I think that she actually there was a disservice done in that Call Me Maybe blew up so big that it was played so much it got overplayed and turned some people off and then people didn't really take her seriously from that point forward and I think it may have in a weird way stunted her career a little bit because as far as I'm concerned Cut to the Feeling is just a better song than Call Me Maybe which is catchy there's no doubt about it which is why they played it roughly a billion times when it was hot whenever it first came out is years ago at this point I don't know, Christine. I feel like if you were in the crowd and everyone was singing along and the big build up to the chorus, I'm just surprised as someone who likes pop music. Like you're a Backstreet Boys fan. You're going to complain about corniness. I mean, pop music is often just sort of like bubblegum fun, corny, not that deep, catchy. It has you like tapping your foot and wanting to sing along. To me, this song is like a 10 out of 10. Oh, oh. I mean, I would at best, best maybe give it a five. Wow. And I, I, I have to say, like, hurtful. You know, you and I banter a lot. We make fun of each other a lot on air. But, like, to me, you're a pretty cool person. Like, on the cool chart, you got some points there. No, that's this- wrong. <laughs> I am not cool. I've never been cool. I'm like a nerd that people kind of like. No, I see. I don't see it that way. But this makes me question a lot. Now I know how you feel. Like I don't know. I'm just. It was very shocking to me when you said where you were going tonight. It was also very surprising listening to that song, knowing you liked it, and then when I had to tell you, like, guy, where are you? Where do you stand with Olivia Rodrigo? Because that's. That's where all the kids are at. Those are the bops, as you call it. Yeah, but those are like like 19-year-olds. They're like 19-year-olds who like her, and it's fine. And she stole one of her most famous songs from a millennial, by the way, and it was like basically the same exact song. That was a whole controversy. And look, she's fine. She's got some music that people like. It comes on the radio. I don't mind it. I probably wouldn't go see her in concert. But if she cranked out a hit, like Cut to the Feeling, then maybe I'd reconsider yeah, can I interject here for a second? Christine put on the song yesterday, and her face turned really, really quickly for the worse. And I'm just thinking, sitting here, she's not one to judge because she's obsessed with Phil Collins. And so I'm sitting here thinking, this song is a bop. I, I give it that for Thank sure. You. And Thank then, you. But she's sitting there loving Phil Collins to a degree I've never seen in my entire life and just ripping on this Carly Rae Jepsen song. Well, okay, I think I think that's a fair point, except and here's the thing, Christine, I'm going to be magnanimous. Phil Collins is really good. Phil Collins and Genesis just sold the rights of their music for three hundred million dollars. You don't do that by accident without having a lot of hits that people like. I would see Phil Collins in concert, Christine. I'm just surprised as someone who likes sort of some let's just say basic pop music. Let's be let's be real. I think Carly Rae falls into that category, and I am just taken aback by the extent of your hostility, especially on this fantastic song. Wyatt has now put his headphones on like he has something to say. Quiet, Wyatt, uh, you're not exactly a musical maven necessarily. Uh, Will you be at the concert? You live in D.C. I have no idea what your social calendar looks like. Might I see you this evening with Carly? Yeah, that's a that's a hard no. <laughs> I, I don't I, I have to kind of agree with Christine. I'm not a huge fan of this song. It's not wow. not too 
great. I don't know. I mean, it's like not like something I would like skip if it was playing on like a, a shuffle, but like it's not something I would actively seek out to play. I'm amazed. I've probably listened to this song a hundred or two hundred times since I discovered it just a few months ago. I will be able to sing along to the lyrics, unlike most of the songs tonight. I'm actually worried about the other hour and a half or whatever of this concert. I'll know Call Me Maybe. I'll know this one by heart. There's a few other ones that I can't name off the top of my head that I will recognize. And then there'll be some other songs. Who knows? Maybe I'll discover an even more amazing bop that's maybe a deep track that I can share with Christine for her to dump on tomorrow. So we'll find out. I hear your judgment, Wyatt. I hear your judgment, Christine. Duly noted for the annual review, by the way. And Dan, thank you. It is a bop. You are correct. And with that, I'm going to go head off to Special Report. I can guarantee you I'm the only person on the Special Report panel tonight going to Carly Rae Jepsen immediately afterwards. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite certain. Who knows? Maybe Brett will be there. No, no chance. I'll be back here tomorrow one way or another. Same time, same place, on the radio. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Hey, and maybe we'll do a caller topic tomorrow so I can actually say, call me maybe. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.